Well, I'll invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. All right, and as you turn there, uh, we have together been studying the book of 1 Corinthians from the very beginning, very first verse, very first word, and we have been coming progressively all the way to this point. And so we find ourselves now at chapter 5, verse 6. Um, and by way of summary of the last two weeks, um, we, we ended the last sermon through 1 Corinthians with a particular passage, and we're going to look at that. And uh, we also had six points of summary about this whole process we've been dealing with. So... Um, here's how we ended our last time together in the book of 1 Corinthians. It was 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 7 through 8. Do you remember this? And we all read this together. It says, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And so this reminds us that we're talking about holiness, aren't we? And what is holiness? Holiness is reflective of the reality of something that is holy and what is holy or who is holy. God is perfectly holy. And what does it mean exactly that God is holy? It's not a word that we use uh, too much, at least in its proper context. But what does it mean that God is holy? For God to be holy, it means that he is completely other than, separate, completely distinct in his being and essence from us. God is perfect and different, perfectly complete in his holiness, other than us. And when his people then become like him, they become holy. We call that also being sanctified. That means to become holy. So as we progress together as individuals and as a church, we are becoming sanctified, we are becoming more holy. God desires a holy people. This is very important. Does God desire for you this morning to be holy in all your thought, in all your conduct? Does God desire that you be holy? Yes. What does it mean to be holy? That means to take who you are and what you think and to conform it to how God thinks and to how God sees situations in all things. And that takes some work, doesn't it? For who we are and how we think and how we process the world and how we live and then to take that and then become more like God and to process the world as he processes it and to act as his holy people, there's a pretty big chasm fixed between those two realities. And so it takes a lot of work for us to become holy. And you know, that work is not something that you and I can produce on our own efforts, our own merits. It is something that God is actually at work producing in you. He is the one actually who sanctifies you. And he does it by his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, who is God, who is holy, is now living in you as a believer, making you holy. All this works together. Now, the big question is, how does that work then as we come together as God's people? We are to be holy, not only individually, but corporately. And what happens when someone does something so egregious, unholy, that 
there has to be some kind of issue here, some way of dealing with that, coping with that. What do we do? The last two weeks, we've been looking at a situation that presents itself beginning at chapter 5, and that is there's a man in the church in Corinth in the first century, and he's in this church, and it says in the text that the man has his father's wife. And we understand what the word has means there. The man has his father's wife. And the church's response to this was, yeah, what of it? And so Paul says, this is happening, and this doesn't even happen among pagans, among the Gentiles, unbelievers, and yet you're boastful in it. You're proud about it. This has not phased you at all, and this is not the way it should be. But instead, Paul says, you are to take this man and get him out of there hand him over to Satan. And we think, what does that mean? To hand a person over to Satan. Let's please gain some context on that situation. And I hope that we did do that as we talked about those five verses. Now, we took a little bit of a time out last week as Sam was teaching through a text in Matthew that outlines a process for how we're to go about approaching someone within our midst in sin, okay? If you weren't here for that one or the one previously, I want to encourage you, please go back and look at those. The full context here matters. But we do have six points of uh, summary about how we're to handle and process all of this, and then we're going to get on our, into our text for this morning, okay? So number one, a point of reality. God has established a standard of conduct to which all believers must conform. That's pretty standard, isn't it? We know that. Is there a standard for all of our life and conduct? Yes or no? Yes. Now, what happens when we don't live up to that standard? Uh, okay, let's continue on in the process. Number two, believers are to live in a community where these standards are taught, exemplified, and expected. That's what a church is to be. That is the function of the church. So to have these qualities not present in a church, the church is not living up to what God has called the church to be collectively. So we are to teach God's standards from his word. We are to exemplify those standards to your neighbor. So you are to be an example to the person next to you, the people looking at you, the people who live with you in this world, in this community. You are to be an example to them. And not only that, all of these standards are to be expected. It's not like, you know, we teach one thing on Sundays, but you are not expected to do these things. I mean, this is just high church here, right? I'm going to read. I might as well just read it in Greek or Latin, right? And I'm going to read it, and you all are going to say whatever you're going to say. We're going to do whatever we're going to do, and then uh, we'll just go home, and we'll act like we didn't hear anything, but at least we went to church. It's just the complete opposite of what we're actually called to do. These things are actually expected to be lived out in your life, not only here, but also when you are not here. Church is not something you go to. Church is something you are. And you are the church if you are a believer in Christ by faith. Whether you are in this room or not, whether we are gathered as the people of God or not, and so your conduct is to be holy, whether you're here or not. So, this is where the whole idea of the hypocritical Christian comes from. 
the one who says, this is expected of all people, I mean, except for me, of course. I don't have to live by these rules, uh, but you do. And this, this is uh, the hypocrite, which we are not to be. Okay, so number three then, the community of believers is responsible for holding one another accountable to those standards. So that means that in this community, the church, you have a, a role to play. Do you know that you, as a member of the church, have a role to play in the sin of other believers? You are to not just turn a blind eye to it. And so unfortunately, you have, to get uncom- you have to get comfortable with the uncomfortable situation of realizing that your life is not a closed book. Now, how far does that go? Well, I think there are limitations. I think we can all agree. However, for the most part, we are to be transparent with one another. Why? Because you know what? If you are a closed book and you do not let me in, and I'm not saying me as the pastor, I'm saying me as another church member, If you do not let me in, how am I to ever know there is anything to hold accountable, right? How do I know anything about your life? And vice versa, right? So this is a call for a sense of transparency. This is not as though everything you do and say must be on public display. That's not what's being said. However, how are we to hold one another accountable if what we do when we're with each other is pretend. I say, how's it going? It's going great. How are you? Fantastic, wonderful. Neither of us is sinning this week and we probably won't next week. That's right. I mean, but at the same time, you're like, well, that's a pleasantry though. It's like, how are you doing? Well, let me give you my list of sins this week. That's my answer. (laughs) There has to be some kind of balance, right? Uh, So, Uh, But at the same time, sometimes this happens in close community, which is why having relationships in the church that are meaningful is important. So if you come in this room, but you don't have meaningful relationships with people in this room, outside of this room, probably things are not going as they should be going for you because no one is on the inside of your life that should be holding you accountable to the standards of the word of God. And I just need to say, is it a good thing or a bad thing that there is accountability for your life? Is it hard to answer that? You know the answer. Is it hard to say it? It is a good thing that there is accountability for your life. Why? Because God wants a holy people, correct? And what is God's plan for that? Yes, the Holy Spirit residing in you, but also your community, your church holding you accountable to these standards. Is that true? Yes. Is it uncomfortable? Is that an uncomfortable reality? Yes. But just as everything else, this is also expected of all of us, that we participate in this. This is not something simply left for the elders to take care of, as we talked about last week. In most situations, the elders and the church collectively don't get involved until the very end of the process. So what happens before you get to the end? That's right, you are involved, right? We are involved on individual level. So you have a role to play in this. Don't neglect it. But if this is not only uncomfortable for the one receiving, okay? This is also very uncomfortable for the one saying, "Uh, I mean, I've got to bring this up. I can't 
just turn a blind eye to your situation. I hate it. I don't want to have this conversation. <sighs> but I, I, I hate even more the idea of me not doing what God has called me to do. So, if you leave this for one person to do, it's not going to get done. That's not God's plan, okay? Number four, when verifiable sin is evident in someone of the community, this sin should not be ignored, right? So, it, the sin is approached, verifiable. Okay, just wanted to verify, you know, your sin. Okay, moving on anyway. I did my job. Uh, no, it's not to be ignored. There should be follow-through, follow-up. And as, as Sam talked about last, last week, okay, what's the timeline, you know? We don't have a timeline, do we? But we know that our general disposition ought to be faithfulness to the word of God and wisdom, right, walking through that. Okay, number five. When this sin is biblically confronted, last week, and there is no evidence of remorse or repentance, this person is to be further disciplined by the community with expulsion. Number six. As this person is then handed over to Satan, the goal of such discipline is shame and suffering in order that they may be brought to a place of repentance and then restored to the community. That's how it works. Now, this is very foreign to very, very many people. It is not foreign to the pages of Scripture. And it is not something culturally bound to the first century either. It is how the church is to conduct itself. So if we want to be a faithful biblical church, what should we be practicing? Church discipline, which is a huge package. It's not one thing, okay? So where are we at this morning then? Verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. All right, now, it's actually as far as we're going this morning. I originally planned, even up till yesterday, uh, I, I originally planned uh, to go all the way through the end of this chapter, but that's, that's just not going to happen. Okay, so let's look at what Paul is saying here because I believe there is an incredible amount of application for us here in this text. So there is a principle on display. And what we're going to see, verses 6 through 8, that Paul is going to give this general principle to the church. But then in verses uh, 9 and following, he unpacks that in terms of application for the church. So all we're looking at this morning is the principle, and then next week we'll look at how that principle then applies to their current situation with this man who has his father's wife, okay? So what is being said here in verses 6 through 8? And we can walk through it um, with just a few ideas here. And the first idea is found in the beginning of verse 6, where it says, your boasting is not good. And this is the indictment brought on the church, okay? Here's your issue, all right? Here's your charge that I'm bringing against you. Your boasting is not good because you're not boasting in the right thing. If we are to boast, we are to boast in all acceptable answers. The Lord Christ, yes, that is true. 
Okay, if we are to boast, we boast in him and what he has done, who he is, what he has accomplished. Yes, is that what they are boasting in? No. So Paul says, you're boasting not good. Why is their boasting not good? Their boasting is related, back up in verse 2, if you look at it, he says, you are arrogant. Do you see that? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this thing be removed from among you. So it was their arrogance. It was their pride that led to their boasting. So they are boasting in their arrogance. And normally the two uh, go together, don't they? The arrogant are normally the boasters. And in this thing, they were arrogant. They were proud. They were lifted up, puffed up. They really thought they were handling this perfectly. But they were not. And they were boasting in their arrogance and their pride. And Paul says to them, your boasting is not good. And he is actually calling for them to reflect. The whole church, the whole church had an incorrect mentality. What do you think about that? The whole collective church, the mindset was wrong. Do you think it's possible that a whole collective church can have a particular mindset about something and for that mindset to be sinful? Who do you think? Or is this only about individuals? Or can it possibly be a collective mindset issue? I think it's very obvious that it can be a collective mindset issue. And this is something that we should really be aware of, that it, it's, it's creating a culture, and culture spreads, doesn't it? And we want to be very careful that the culture that we create is not one that is antithetical to Scripture, such as boasting in our arrogance, right? But it's hard to see sometimes because sin is blinding, isn't it? And when everyone's doing it and everyone's participating in it and everyone's okay with it, guess what? The culture is, we're doing that thing. We're okay with that. That's fine with us collectively. And sometimes it calls for us to be the one that goes against the grain of the culture, doesn't it? In a biblical manner, right? In a biblical, not in your own boasting and arrogance. Everybody else is wrong and I'm the right one. Now, if everybody else is doing something or thinking a certain thing, and you're the only one that doesn't, I would have to argue, you better be real, real slow and careful to say that you're the one that's right and all these other hundred people are wrong. However, it's not impossible. Not impossible. Because that's exactly what Paul is doing to this entire church. They were wrong in their mindset. They were proud about it. They're still proud. They're arrogant. Their situation has not phased them. So now Paul seeks to correct their sinful, arrogant boasting, and he's doing it with this principle that he's about to outline. But the indictment comes first. So what's the issue? They're arrogant. They're boasting, and it's not good. And so now he's going to lay out a biblical principle that they should apply to their situation, but first he's going to lay out the principle. So what is that principle? Why is it wrong? Why is what we're boasting about wrong? Well, Paul says, second half of verse 6, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And they say, ah, oh, I get it. Okay, that's why, it's, that's why our boasting is wrong. Do you not know? Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Or do you know? Do you not know? Are those the same question? Yes, they are. What is leaven? Well, it is yeast, but it is, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a wild yeast, in a sense. It's not baking yeast, like we have the little granules, you know, whatever you want to call those, little specks. 
I see them in a jar at my house. I don't ever use them, but I see them. And I know what they do. I know what they can accomplish. But uh, we also have at our house, and I know many of you do also, have a sourdough starter. Some of you have that in your house as well, don't you? Now, that's more what leaven is. Leaven is more like a sourdough starter than it is a packaged yeast in the granules. And there's significance to that because what happens is you take a little bit of that and uh, you, you put it in with your flour or your lump of dough and uh, it takes hold of the entire lump and the entire thing begins to expand, right? So what is he saying? Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So we're going to camp out here for a second because Paul is bringing out an illustration to enforce his principle. This is actually how he's teaching the principle. The principle is, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? That's the principle. What does that mean? We need a little bit of context. And in order to get that context, I'm going to have you turn with me to the book of Exodus, please, if you would. Exodus chapter 12. As you're turning there, remember this process of putting leaven into a lump of dough, it does not happen immediately. The, the dough does not rise immediately, correct? It takes a little time. If no leaven is added, the dough, it, it's, it's called, amazingly, unleavened. If there is leavened bread and there is unleavened bread, and the word unleavened, leavened in Hebrew no matzah that's exactly what it is that's the Hebrew word for unleavened matzah okay so let's look at the context are you there Exodus 12 verses 1 through 20 a familiar story but let's think about the bread okay the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. This month shall be for you the beginning of months, and it shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel, they shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. That right there, verse 8, where it says unleavened bread, that is the first mention of unleavened bread in all the Bible. It's significant. Verse 9, do not eat it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. You shall not let, you, you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning, you shall burn. And in this manner, you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, with your sandals on your feet, 
with your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For, here's why. Here's why they must eat it in this manner. And how should they eat it? With their belt fastened? With your sandals on your feet? With your staff in your hand? They're ready to go. Why? For I will pass through the land of Egypt when? That night. That's important. And I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. And why will he do this? I am the Lord, he says. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will befall you to destroy you, and when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. That's an important phrase, the memorial day. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For anyone who eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Now, pause. That's verse 15. That's a bit harsh. That if you eat bread with leaven in it, or there's any leaven found in your house, you will be cut off from your people. That's very extreme, don't you think? Why? Because I ate the wrong thing. Hmm. What significance does that have? Verse 16. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on these days, but whatever anyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared for you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. That's that seven-day period of time where you can't eat leaven or have it in your house. For on this very day I brought you your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For se- it's just, he keeps saying the same thing over and over. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses, just in case you were wondering. If anyone eats what is leaven, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he's a sojourner or a native. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. And at that point we say, whew, okay, I get it. Leaven, bad. I will not eat it for how many days? Seven days at a particular period of time in the calendar year. Oh, okay. And when does that seven days start? When you kill the Passover lamb, right? Kill the Passover lamb, and then seven days, no leaven to be found in your house. Seven days, seven days, no leaven. Do not eat leavened bread. Only eat unleavened bread. Why? Is there such an emphasis on this thing with the bread? And why are they to have this meal throughout their generations all to come? Why? Because the unleavened bread holds a very symbolic significance. Two more short passages. That was a long one, I know, but just two more short ones here. They emphasize what's going on. Deuteronomy 16.3, it says... You shall eat no leavened bread. We understand that. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread. And then he calls it here the bread of affliction. The bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste. 
and all the days of your life, you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. So this is, this is a, it's a remembrance thing. So when you eat the unleavened bread, you're going to look back and say, this was the bread of affliction. And when we eat it, we're going to remember what God did. Okay, there's more to it. Exodus 3, 7 and 8 says, Then the Lord said, I surely have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their sufferings. I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites. Okay. All that just confirms God saw the affliction of the people of Israel, so that affliction became the bread of affliction, and God delivered them from their affliction. What is affliction? Sufferings, pain, their oppression. God delivered them from all of that. And then a final thing here. I'll read for you out of Exodus 12, back in Exodus 12, beginning in verse 29. This is more so a, a, uh, a telling of the story of what happened, okay? We got the instructions here a few minutes ago, what you're to do, how you're to observe it, but now this is more the narrative of what happened. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. And the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, all the firstborn of all the livestock, no one was left out. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in the city of e in Egypt, and there was not a house where someone was not dead. And then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Now, when did Pharaoh wake up and realize all this bad stuff was happening? At night. And when did he summon Moses and Aaron? At night. And when did God say that he was going to do this? At night. And that's why they had to have all their stuff ready to leave when? That night. So it continues. Uh, he summoned Moses and Aaron, and he said to them, go up, out of my, uh, go up from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go, serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said. Be gone, and bless me also. Uh, the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, oh, if we don't, we're all going to be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened. Why, why is he mentioning that? And why did they have dough? I mean, if you're leaving, why are you taking your dough with you? Can you just make some more dough? No, it's important. Why? Because God has just fulfilled what he said. They didn't, I mean, they had to have faith, didn't they? They didn't know. They got their lambs, they slaughtered them, and then they had no leaven to be found in their house. And they said, well, he said, go ahead and put your shoes on your feet, right? Get your staff, make sure your belt's on, and you are ready to go because I'm going to do this thing tonight. And so they were ready. And God told them to have this dough, and so they had their dough, and, but it didn't have any leaven in it. Why? It says, before it was leavened. See, there wouldn't have been time for it to rise. There is incredible symbolic significance to this. God did this in haste. God did this quickly. There's not even time for their leaven to rise in their dough. And they took their kneading bowls, being bound up in their cloaks and on their shoulders, and the people of Israel had done all Moses told them to do, and they asked the Egyptians for silver, gold, and for clothing. 
and the Lord had given the people favor inside of the Egyptians, and they had whatever they asked. And so they plundered the Egyptians. That probably didn't make them very happy. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. So we're talking somewhere two, three million people. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock and flocks and herds, and they baked unleavened cakes out of the dough that they had brought out from Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and they could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Ah, so it was the Lord who's going to provide. Okay, what do we say about all that? That's a big story. Hopefully you get what's going on. Here's how we might summarize unleavened bread in the Old Testament. The bread, this is the bread that reminds the people of God's powerful and swift deliverance from their affliction. The dough did not even have time to rise. That is how quickly the Lord delivered them. Now, just pause for a second. The deliverance of the Lord. He can act instantly. You know this. Now, in this particular situation, what did he deliver them from? From Egypt, from their oppressors. Uh, was God bound to deliver them from suffering? No. I mean, who was forcing them to do that? But he simply appeared to Moses. How? Miraculously, in a burning bush. And he said, I've heard the sufferings, the afflictions of my people, and I am going to intervene and deliver them. And very quickly, he brings this to pass. Should God decide to bring about deliverance in your situation, or more significantly and more importantly, deliver you in the terms of salvation, the Lord is able to deliver whenever he says. He delivers immediately. And there is none like him who can deliver. Is it bad that we would pray that the Lord would deliver us from difficult situations? What do you think? No, it's not bad. If you think it's bad, something's broken inside, something's missing, okay? The dots have not been connected properly. We can pray when we suffer, and we should. However, God is not bound. He must not, he is not bound to deliver us from our physical afflictions. He is not bound to deliver us from sin and its punishment. There's nothing that says he must do that. In fact, we're all going to die one day, and in earthly terms, that's going to be a bad day for you. And you will not be delivered from it, probably, unless the Lord comes, okay? That's going to happen. But should we pray that we might be delivered? Did Jesus pray that he might be delivered? But he said, not my will, but yours be done. It's absolutely what he said, right? Now, Paul gives us an illustration here of leaven and bread. And he says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, his context, being very Jewish, is the Jewish concept of leaven. Leaven, good thing or bad thing, generally speaking, bad thing, a bit negative association with leaven, okay? Now, we're going to move on from that bit of the illustration to something he says next, which is an imperative. 
So he says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And they would say, well, yes, I mean, we know that. So the imperative then is, verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you might be a new lump. Cleanse out the leaven that you might be a new lump. The new lump, of course, being unleavened. So Paul represents the Corinthian church as a lump of dough. What is the leaven here referenced in 1 Corinthians 5? Is it a reference to Passover? The answer is no, it's not. There's two metaphors happening simultaneously, so is that a little confusing? Yep, it's okay to acknowledge that. I mean, it's a little confusing. Uh, There are two different types of metaphors happening simultaneously as we read this. To understand them both is to understand the principle that Paul was teaching them. So if we bypass understanding the illustration and the the metaphors, we bypass understanding Paul's principle completely. There is, in a sense, a leavening effect that happens. A leavening effect. Um, And it's, again, symbolic. But, for example, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 16, verse 5. He says... When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Is he talking about Passover? No. Is he talking about bread? He's talking about bread. And he says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What kind of leaven is that? In verse 12 down here, it says, they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Unbiblical, incorrect teaching was considered leaven. Likewise, Mark 8, 15, he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Is leaven good or bad here? Leaven bad. Galatians 5, 7 through 12, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. There, he said it again. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In the case of the offense of the cross, that has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. So just, if you can all go with me here, what he's saying is, they're preaching to you circumcision where you cut a little bit. I suggest they just cut it all. That's what he just said. That's pretty harsh language. Now, what is being said here? What is Paul saying when he says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? You should cleanse out the leaven that you might be a new lump, which is unleavened. There was someone writing at the time of Paul and Jesus, and his name was Philo. Okay? You may or may not have heard of Philo. He was a Hellenistic Jew. He lived in Alexandria, Egypt, which had the largest population of Jews outside of Palestine. And he was, uh, his teachings were uh, pretty influential. He says this concerning leaven. I think it's helpful, and we're going we're gonna to move on from this idea here in just a second, but just listen to what Philo has to say. He says, Leaven is forbidden on account of the rising which it causes. 
the prohibition against having figurative meaning, of course, intimating that no one who comes to the altar ought to allow himself to be elated and puffed up by insolence, but that such persons might keep their eyes fixed on the greatness of God and obtain a proper conception of the weakness of all he has created, even if the purpose being preposterous, and that so cherishing correct notions they might correct, correct their arrogant loftiness of their minds and discard all treacherous self-conceit. So what is he saying? He's saying that leaven does what to bread? Puffs, puffs it up. Just like you being puffed up. And what was the big problem with the Corinthians? What was bad? What was the indictment? You're boasting. And how have we been talking about that? What did it mean? It means to be puffed up. So, how is leaven associated with the Corinthians? That they've allowed a little leaven in, and this situation has caused them to be inflated, just like leaven inflates bread. And he's saying, your boasting is not good. You need to cleanse out the leaven and be a new lump that's not inflated. However, it also has another symbolic meaning, which is about all that is unholy, all that is unclean, all that is sinful, and all that is arrogant. This is leaven in the New Testament. Leaven, anything leaven in the New Testament is going to be unholy, unclean, sinful, and arrogant. Unleavened is going to be all that is holy, is clean, is righteous, and that is humble. So their lump of dough has been corrupted with leaven, and now they have become puffed up. And if, they, if they're not careful, if they let it sit, and they let it rise, then pretty soon the entire lump is going to become so infected that the whole thing is going to rise and be out of control, right? So he says, get the leaven out of there. What is the leaven? Okay, we get it. Leaven bad. We've heard that on repeat this morning. You want us to take the leaven and get it out of here. Wonderful. Please just tell us what the leaven is. Well, the thing about it is that he already did in verses 1 through 5. It's this man. He said, kick the man out. In other words, get the leaven out. Because if you don't, this is going to infect the entire church. So, oh. So now we see. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And this is how we see very specifically that God desires a holy church. And when there is unholiness in it, leaven. What are we to do with that leaven? If we let it sit, if we turn a blind eye to it, what is it going to do? It's going to infect the whole lump, and the whole lump is going to become infected and inflated. Now, we recognize that we've become inflated. What do we do now? Well, you, can st you still have a chance here. Get rid of the leaven, and you will become a new lump. Let's do that. You must enact church discipline on this man. As he says, let the one who has done this thing be removed from among you. So certainly he is the leaven. Second half of verse 7, we've moved here from an indictment to an illustration to an imperative, get that leaven out of here, to the indicative. And indicative just means what is, right? Imperative means here's something to do, do this. Imperative or indicative means I'm just telling you something that is. I'm not asking you to do anything here. I'm just telling you what is. Because it says, very confusingly next, you are leavened, you are infected, but then it says, as you really are unleavened, 
wait, you just said that we were infected by leaven, and, the, and a little leaven leavens the whole lump, but you're telling us that we are unleavened? Is anybody else confused? You really are unleavened. What? But you just said that we are leavened, and we need to get rid of the leaven that we might be unleavened. But he says, don't confuse anything. You really are unleavened. Even if we don't do anything, even if you don't do anything, you already are unleavened. And what is leaven? All that is unholy, sinful, really has passed away from you. How is that possible? Because all the wrath for all of our sin has already been paid for on the cross. You are sanctified, but you are becoming sanctified. You are unleavened, but you need to be unleavened. Right? All this is true. So a mixed symbolism. Why? Because he says you really are unleavened for, here's how that happened. Your Passover lamb, Christ, has been sacrificed. Your Passover lamb, Christ, has been sacrificed. And now, when the lamb is sacrificed, are we to eat leaven? Please answer this question properly. After the Passover lamb is sacrificed, are you allowed to eat leaven? No. For how many days? For seven days. What Paul is saying here is that that seven-day period has now stretched into eternity because there will not be a new Passover lamb next year or the next year or the next year or the next year. We had one perfect Passover lamb, and who is that? Jesus Christ, and he was sacrificed, and his blood not only freed you from the affliction of your situation, his blood freed you from the affliction of sin. And now that your Passover lamb has been sacrificed, it is up to you now to make sure that there is no leaven found in your house. For how many days? It doesn't end. It doesn't end. So you see how it's a mixed symbolism. Leaven over here means all that is bad. But leaven again over here is talking about something else. For you really are unleavened. And we're bread. Lots of symbolism here, right? But I hope that we're grasping two separate ideas that actually fit together perfectly. The reason the church is unleavened is because Christ has been sacrificed, right? The Passover sacrifice of Jesus, he is the perfect spotless lamb of God. And by a single offering, he has perfected for all those, all those for all time who are being sanctified. And that is Hebrews 10:14. He has perfected us. Who? Those who are being sanctified. Wait, are we perfect already or are we becoming perfect? Both. You are perfect in the eyes of God in that there is no more wrath for sin to pay. He has covered it all. But in another sense, you are becoming sanctified as you become more holy. God wants a holy church and he himself produces it. So the church then, corporately and individually, is called to live out the reality of what Christ has already done. If Christ truly is our Passover lamb and there is no leaven to be found in our homes, in our house, in his house, then we are to perpetually live in the reality that we really are unleavened as we seek to become unleavened. And should there be any leaven found among us, we get it out of here so that we all don't become infected. That makes sense? 
So what's the implication then? That's verse 8. What are you trying to say? Well, here's what I'm trying to say. Verse 8, let us celebrate the festival. <laughs> what, f- what festival are we talking about? Uh, there's so much insider information here just in these few verses. What festival, Paul, are you talking about? He's talking about the festival of unleavened bread, that seven-day period. That seven-day period where no leaven is to be found in your house because the Passover lamb was sacrificed. He says, let us celebrate that festival. For how long, Paul? He's saying, let us celebrate it every day. Every day we celebrate the feast of unleavened bread. Every day, and it never ends. Not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That's how we're to act. What is malice? Malice is, is what is evil, wickedness, right? So not with wickedness and evil and sin, because wickedness, evil, and sin is considered what? Leaven. So obviously we can't have any of that here, because we're supposed to be celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread after all. No leaven is to be found. So that means no malice, no sin. You understand? No sin is to be found in your homes. Because we are celebrating the festival. Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And his blood is covering you. And the wrath of God will pass over you. But instead, we are to have what is unleavened. How are we unleavened bread? Well, with all that is pure and with all that is sincere and true. That idea of sincerity is mixed with purity there, okay? All that is pure and true of God. If you are pursuing all that is of God, you really will be unleavened. So tell me, just on reflection here, would you say that with your life, I live every day celebrating the feast of unleavened bread? There is no leaven found in my home. And by home, I mean here in my person, right? So how many people are celebrating the feast of unleavened bread? And if any leaven is found in you, what happens? You're cut off from the people. So does that mean that when I sin, I'm cut off from the people of God? Oh, that could be an an implication, but it would be very wrong. Because our sacrifice was not simply a lamb, was it? But it was God in the flesh. His blood atonement was perfect. And it has sanctified us completely and perfectly in a way that we have become justified before the eyes of God so that even when you sin, your sin has already been covered. Okay? And so what this means is when you had faith in Jesus Christ, your sins, all your sins in the past that you had committed, all your sins in the present that you're currently committing, and all your sins in the future, all the sins you would ever commit, yes, all were covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. So then, when I sin, that doesn't cut me off because it's already cared for. And in a sense, 
I really am unleavened. Even when I'm not. What? I hope that makes sense to you. That you really are unleavened eternally, perfectly, positionally. But as it stands here and today, there is still leaven to deal with, sin. But we ought to be pursuing every day with everything that we are that today is the feast of unleavened bread and I'm going to be very, very, very careful that there's no leaven found anywhere. There actually, as, as time went on, in the tradition of the Hebrew people, they would do these little searches throughout the house. You're familiar with this, right? You go, search for all the leaven, right? Go find it. It kind of turns into a game, right? Now, be assured of this. The search for sin in your life is not a game. But you should be searching for it nevertheless. So the question is, are you, in a very real and honest way, searching all throughout your heart and your mind and your life making sure that there is no sin to be found. And when you find it, what do you do with it personally? You cut it out. And you thank God that he has forgiven you of that. You confess it to God. You say, God, I see that now in my life. I see it and I'm saying that it's sin. And I thank you that you have already paid the penalty for this sin. And help me, Lord, by your power and by your grace, by your might and mercy in my life that I might not do this anymore. And that is called repentance. For you really are unleavened. And it really is the feast of unleavened bread today, here and now, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now, how does that situation play itself out in their current, current situation? How, does, how do you apply that principle to what's going on in their church? That's next week. Okay? So you see why I had to stop right there. What are we doing today? We are having the Lord's Supper today. I would like for you, please, just to uh, turn with me at a couple, just two more passages, and uh, as we prepare ourselves to take the Lord's Supper today. Luke twenty-two fourteen through 20 is the first one I want to read for you. Luke twenty-two fourteen through 20. And wouldn't you know it, what, what, what day was this? It's amazing. Luke 22, verse 14, it says, And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And so he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them. And he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So he was taking, well, and likewise he took the cup. And he said, this is my blood poured out for you. It's the new covenant in my blood. So what he's doing is he's taking the elements of the Passover, right? The broken body of a lamb, and he's taking the whole symbolism with the bread with it, right? And he's saying, uh, my blood has been spilled, just like the blood of the lamb was spilled. I am being sacrificed for you. I am the perfect Passover lamb. So now, when you eat this meal, it is me that you will remember. 
you will no longer simply remember that you have been delivered in the past from Egypt. Because that's why they were doing that, right? It was a memorial meal that would reflect back on all that God did for them as he freed them from their afflictions in Egypt. But as they're eating that meal, that meal of memorial, that meal of remembrance, he says, no longer is this simply, now we should remember that as well, now, no longer is this simply what you will remember, but I will be delivering you from something far greater. And this, when you eat it and when you drink, you will be remembering me and this covenant that I have made with you. 